A few months ago, it kind of dawned on me that the evangelical church in the United States went through a season in publishing and in conferences, and some of the biggest voices in Christianity really had one drumbeat. You may remember some of these titles. I won't mention uh, any of them specifically because I benefited from some of them. I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be critical. The trend in publishing and in conferences and things that pastors were being told and things that were being offered to us as new directions and new inspiration for our churches all had to do with living a radical life. There were a lot of books and publishing going around, basically inviting every Christian alive or at least every Christian that spoke English to go on this radical all the way to the wall, no holds barred, tooth-cracking intensity kind of a spiritual adventure with God. And for a while, that was all everyone talked about. It wasn't all bad. I know a few young men who actually read those books, were inspired by this amazing appeal to radical living, who actually gave their lives to missionary service, one of them in particular serving in a very hard place. So God brought some good out of that. But a few months ago, as I was evaluating the latest trends, because there's always a new book, there's always a new speaker, there's always a new conference, it dawned on me for that for many more people that I spoke to, this call to radical living just didn't really ring true. Because they had ordinary jobs and ordinary families and got up at an ordinary time and ate an ordinary breakfast and worked a regular schedule. And life to them just seemed mundane. And a few people I talked to, because they read radical books and went to radical conferences, when they returned to the everyday drudgery, when the sheer mundane nature of life as they actually had it, and rather than the way the book presented it, some of them felt cheated. And I'm afraid of them. A few of them felt like failures. Here's my point in telling you this. After all these years of walking with Jesus, I'm not, I hope I'm not done yet on this earth, but I've been walking with the Lord for a while. Reflecting of all that made me think of a simple truth that is found in Scripture and you can see everywhere in life. All things being equal, consistency is much greater than intensity. All things being equal, what matters most is to know a few simple truths and to continually put them in practice rather than try to live life in fifth gear. If you've ever experienced anyone, whether they're an athlete or a musician or a speaker or a teacher or a wise counselor, if you've ever been in the presence of someone who is doing their thing, exercising their gift, plying their trade, doing their profession, and they're doing it in a masterful sense, what you've probably experienced almost certainly is someone who dedicated themselves for a very long time to the habits and the truths of the things that made them masterful in the moment. Are there times for intensity? Of course. But if you've ever seen someone who gets the crowd out, gets the crowd out of their seats and on their feet cheering, what you're seeing is momentary intensity and what you may be missing is many years in obscurity probably in anonymity, when the crowd was not there, where that person learned and continually practiced 
repetition after repetition, day after day, decision after decision, they practiced the simple habits that made them possible to be a master and to be intense when the situation required it. That's the wisdom I find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. At the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul, who is wrapping up this letter, is going to underline and give three terse commands to Christians he had left behind in Thessalonica. Here's what you need to know about them. They're suffering. Like Paul, their Christianity has not been easy. They received the good news of Jesus in the middle of persecution. They received the good news of Jesus. This little congregation trusted Jesus. A church was born, but their family and their society at large was not pleased. They suffered persecution from the time they believed until the present day. Paul himself explains that they're going through the same persecution that Jewish believers did before them and that he's going through himself. In fact, the reason Paul has to write them is he's had to run for his life because persecution engulfed him, and he likely would have been jailed and possibly even beaten or killed had he remained where he was with them. So he sends this letter back to tell them, give them further instruction. He basically says, we were interrupted. Let me remind you of a few basic things I taught you. Let me go deeper with some of those things, and let me remind you in all of it, in the middle of this suffering, here are the things that you can do together as a church family that will help you navigate suffering successfully. And this letter is 2,000 years old, but it couldn't be any more timely because we're a congregation of Christians too. Then we're all suffering in our own way. There's not one family in this congregation that hasn't been affected by this pandemic. Marriages have been strained. Parenting has been tested. Your economic certainty that you thought you once enjoyed may have been shaken. Hopefully that wasn't your experience, but I don't think there's a single person here in the parking lot or listening online that hasn't had their world upended at least a little bit since this thing began in March. So let's look again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and let me remind you of a few basic things from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is actually part two, because the man who's speaking to you has no sense of pacing anymore. I thought I was writing one sermon last week. As it turned out, I made a mid-sermon decision that there were actually two sermons here. I felt like a sophomore in Bible college doing that to you folks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what we saw last week is that the way a church moves together through suffering is, first, this was last week, we serve one another as part of God's family. The responsibility of pastors, Paul says, is to guide people. The responsibility given to the people is to listen and to respond when they're given good leadership, when they're given good teaching. He also goes on to say that in a time of suffering, Christians who find themselves strong help those who find themselves struggling. And because we're a family and because life changes quickly, the roles may be reversed. I may be in a position to help and encourage and pray for you this week. I may need you to come help and encourage me the week following. Read with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Here's last week's passage. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. 
and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. Paul here is referring to the pastors of the elders of the church. A pastor, he explains, and he's not the only one, this thread of truth runs through the New Testament. Pastors are those who are among the flock. They don't stand over it. They're not tyrants. They're fellow disciples, but they've been given a responsibility. They've been given the responsibility to work hard among the people, to lead them in the Lord, to correct them as necessary. And the people's job in response is to esteem them, not because of their identity, but because, Paul says, because of their work. And because times of struggling, times of suffering bring on division, make people impatient, make people short-sighted and short-tempered, Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. But it's not just the pastors. Verse 14 says that we all have a responsibility toward one another. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Life is not one continual fifth-gear experience. You're going to have joy and suffering. You're going to have success and failure. You're going to have setbacks in your walk with Jesus. You're going, you shouldn't, but you will take pauses. You will, from time to time, take a knee spiritually, not to pray, but to catch your breath. You may even lose sight of the purpose and the person of God in the middle of your suffering. Don't let that alarm you. That is the experience of the Christians in the New Testament and all through human history. That's why Paul says, when you see that someone has grown lazy, they're idle. When you see that someone in suffering has become faint-hearted, when you see that someone can't stand on their own anymore but is weak, come alongside them. Admonish, light a fire under the lazy, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and in all your dealings with each other, Paul says, be patient with everybody, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That was last week. We serve one another, whether we are pastors or members of a congregation, we serve one another because we are, according to verse 12, we are brothers and sisters. We belong to each other. We belong not only to God, we belong to each other as well. Now, here comes this week's teaching. These are these habits. These are these simple practices. And please hear me say that. These are practices. These are commitments. This is what a pastor from another generation called a long obedience in the same direction. If you read these as things that you must always do perfectly, you'll soon be discouraged, beginning with the very first one. All of these will have points of failure. You will lose sight. You will grow discouraged. Real growth, real godliness, real fruitfulness, the effect that you want to have that the books that are encouraging fifth-gear radical Christian living are trying to present to you, those don't come in a moment. Those come from a lifelong practice of personal, loving obedience to God. It's like people who say, you know, I, I tried to get in shape last week, but it didn't work. Well, it's, it's not going to, not for a week. These are practices. Everybody clear on that? Here's what they are. Three terse, quick commandments in Greek, reflected in English. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How do we move through suffering together? Number two, we commit to godly habits that transcend our circumstances. Please hear this. Please keep a note of this mentally or write it down somewhere. If you make your walk with Jesus depend upon your circumstances, you will always be vulnerable. Circumstances change in a moment. If the pandemic has taught us nothing else, it has taught us that. Life is fragile. Circumstances are variable. People are not only frail, people are weak and people are ignorant. People don't know what to do and given many options often do the wrong thing. All of that creates a world that is unstable and chaotic and if you make your spiritual walk with God and your spiritual habits and commitments depend upon circumstances, you will always be vulnerable. You'll be, like the wind, you'll be like the wind and the waves in the Pacific Ocean, always changing, always subject to momentary change. That's why Paul says emphatically, there are three things that these suffering believers need to be doing. And you'll notice using different words, he says that these things have to always be done. They have to be continually done. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Don't miss this. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We are always rejoicing. I talked to you a little bit about that last week. Let me remind you. Happiness depends merely on what happens. Paul didn't say always be happy. That's impossible. No one can be permanently happy. Anybody who's claiming to always be happy is faking it. And like the optimist that fell off the skyscraper. Have you heard this terrible joke? This is a dad joke, fair warning, okay? Nobody liked it in the first service, but here we are. I don't know why. You'd think I'd be capable of learning, but apparently I'm not. And I've already begun. I might as well finish. An optimist fell off a skyscraper every floor as he fell. He said, well, so far so good. Told you it was bad. That's not rooted in reality. That's not in accordance with truth. The Bible is truth. The Bible speaks of Jesus who is truth embodied, who actually is as God and the Son of God who became a man to save you from sin. He is truth. It's not merely a better perspective. It's not merely a better attitude. It's not putting a good face on things. It's not finding the one good thing in the midst of a bad thing. Not talking about that. The Bible tells you truth. So if it tells you to always be rejoicing, it must be possible. Remember, Paul himself is writing in the midst of suffering. This is not an ivory tower theologian who has no acquaintance with real life. If Paul could be here this morning, and that would be much better for you, if Paul could preach the sermon, you likely would, would, with me, sitting out there with you, would be appalled by his physical appearance. His body would have borne defensive wounds up and down his arms from the times they tried to kill him. He very likely would have been half blind. He very likely would need help getting up those steps. His own, one of his own letters acknowledges that in terms of his physical presence, he was contemptible. There was nothing impressive. He was literally a pitiful-looking man. How does someone who has suffered so much 
who has given so much, who has been betrayed by so many, who at the end of his life says, no one is with me. How does he continually express joy and how in the world does he command it? Because it doesn't depend on circumstances. It depends on what you've already been given and what you know is certainly going to be yours. Your present identity in Christ that at the cost of the son of the life of the son of God, you are already in God's family. You've been given a new identity. You have a new name. Your past has been forgiven and redeemed by Jesus, and your future is secure in heaven. It depends on the certainty of what you already possess, who you already are, and on the certainty of your future. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians closes with a reference to the second coming of the Lord. Now, that's important. Now, for those of you who are interested in such things, let me tell you, the chapters and the verses of the Bible were only added about 500 years ago. This is a personal letter from the Apostle Paul. He's not chopping it up with chapter and verse divisions as he goes. Does that make sense? If you started writing a personal letter to a family member and started chopping it up with chapters and verse divisions, they might think you were a little strange. Those were added for the convenience of study. But in dividing the Bible into chapters and verses, the scholars who did that did us a favor in dividing 1 Thessalonians because it just so happens that they put the divisions in a way that helps you see that as Paul moves from idea to idea, every chapter he is continually returning, promising them, reminding them, rejoicing with them that the Lord is coming for them. That's the end of the story. You know that the end of the story is good, but don't miss sight of this simple truth. Just because you know the end of the story is good doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. told you this last week. Have you ever watched a movie knowing that it's a happy ending, but you can't help but crying through the sad parts in the middle? This is the middle. There's going to be some sad parts in your life. Don't lose sight of the end of the story and who you already are in the middle of the story because that will make you continually joyful. It will move you past the triviality and the ever-changing circumstances that can make you only happy depending on what happened to you that day, and it will give you something deeper, something stable and unchanging. It will give you joy. After that, Paul gave another commandment. Now we're on to new ground. What did he tell us to do in verse 17? Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now again, you have to understand Paul in context. This doesn't and can't possibly mean that you are praying at every moment of the day. That's not physically possible. Right now, I'm trying to communicate the Bible. I occasionally pray in the middle of my own preaching, but not continually because I'm trying to think and talk to you. What does Paul mean to pray without ceasing? He means that in a time of suffering, keep attending to God. Keep a channel open toward heaven as your life gets difficult on earth so that you continually tell your heavenly Father who already knows everything about you and knows the purpose He has for you so that you continually talk to Him. Think about the privilege that you have that any time you please, including now, if you want to tune me out for a second, 
and turn to your heavenly Father in prayer and without actually pronouncing a word, you read something in Scripture and God illumines your understanding and He says, that's true, that's for you, that's how much you, I love you. You can turn to your heavenly Father and thank Him in that moment. You can hear something in the Bible. You can hear, you can hear something in a conversation with a Christian friend and God can convict you and show you where you've gone wrong. And in that moment, you have, as his child, as his son or his daughter, you have the immense privilege to always turn to your father and speak, direct your thoughts to him, and he is going to listen to you. These are the simple, unromantic things that don't create bestsellers. These are the simple, deep practical habits of the Christian life that keep you always keeping your eye on the end of the story. And as you move through life and its difficult parts, you're continually talking to your heavenly father about it. What's the next verse? I believe it's uh, verse 18. What else are we told to do? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I want to stop here for a minute And really, for those of you who already know the Lord Jesus as Savior, if you could take one habit with you from this message, this would be the one I would like to commend to you and I would like to explain to you. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, whether you're joining us or online or you've been coming to church and maybe it's a new thing for you and you're hoping that a pastor or a church can give you some idea, communicate something to you that will help your life make sense and help you find your way through, I'm already here to tell you His name is Jesus. That's all I am. I'm just a messenger telling you about the only one who can save you. Nobody, including yourself, can master your circumstances. Nobody, including yourself, can control your life. But Jesus can save you. He can bring you into the family of God because He died for your sins. He died to give you His own eternal life. He alone has gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you in heaven. If you don't know Him, trust Him today as Savior. But if you already do, if you're already a Christian, if you're already walking with Jesus, understanding what Paul said in verse 18, and please catch this, cultivating it. In other words, finding a simple way to put into practice what you've already plainly been commanded to do will change your life. Gratitude will change your life. Here's what I suggest. About three years ago, I came across a book by way of some other research and writing I was doing by an American psychologist from the University of Pennsylvania named Martin Seligman. Dr. Seligman is probably the most cited scholar and practicing psychologist in America today. He's a big deal. He teaches at an elite school. He has directed and helped with amazing huge initiatives, including something done for the United States Army, trying to create wellness in soldiers. What happened was, a few decades ago, Martin Seligman changed the question. Through his own frustrations with his own practice, he discovered that psychology was really asking this question. What's wrong with people? In other words, what are their pathologies? What is going on with them mentally that we can address? 
he had a revolutionary idea to change the question and to ask not what's wrong with people and how do we clear those problems, but what makes human beings flourish? What makes people strong? What makes them have a life and cultivate a life that they can actually enjoy? Now, as far as I know, Martin Seligman has no reference to God. In all the things I've read about of his, and it's quite a bit, there's no reference to faith, there's no reference to God. I'd be surprised, greatly surprised, if he were a Christian. Why am I even telling you about him? Because Martin Seligman asked a question that goes into the way God made human beings. In other words, he stumbled onto what theologians call general revelation. There are things that God has put in the world, including creation itself, that speak to God, that point to God, and people on their own, because they're made on the image of God, can discover, not all and not the most important parts, but they can discover a great deal of truth because they are made in God's image and they live in God's world with the minds, however fallen, that God gave them. Make sense so far? Here's what Martin Seligman said. After decades of practice, including being a clinical director, the single most important and powerful thing he found, even among people who, according to his writings, are very depressed, is to practice, he won't say it, but I will, is to put in practice 1 Thessalonians 5.18 and to be continually giving thanks. Did you notice the next part? Give thanks what? In all circumstances. In other words, in all the things that happen to you, good and bad, because circumstances are variable, in all of those things, always be giving thanks. And here's how he suggests you do it. And we can make, we can make the final step of the journey that is hidden to him until he puts his faith in Jesus. We can add a step to his journey and truly redeem the idea put into actual full-blown Christian practice, what Paul commanded. Here's a simple way to put it in practice. There are others. Here's what he suggests. I'm commending it to you because it will change your life if you practice it day by day. Seligman calls it the what went right or the three blessings exercise. Here's how it works. At the end of the day, you sit down and you review your day and you write down, here's his contribution, you write down three blessings or three things that went right with your day and having identified those, you write down why you are grateful for those. Three things you're grateful for and, three re and the reasons you're grateful for each one of them. Here's how my practice went this morning and I'll add the biblical, the truthful, the eternal step. This morning I got up way before the sun came up and I staggered out to the living room as I am prone to do on Sunday mornings and I sat down with my Bible and I sat down with my sermon and I studied it by the light of our Christmas tree. Now it's still November, but our Christmas tree is up. And the reason our Christmas tree is up is because I'm married to a wonderful, beautiful woman who is absolutely determined that when Thanksgiving is over, the Christmas decorations get started. She had pretty marginal cooperation from the other members of the household, but she was determined. And sitting and being able for the first time in nearly a year to read the Bible by the lights of a Christmas tree, it made me grateful. 
because I thought it's been nearly a year since I sat here and I was able to do this. And this has been an exceedingly difficult year, but I'm alive. I'm healthy. People I love are under this roof with me. And more than that, I have a Bible in my own language. Thousands and thousands upon people died to give me the Bible in my native tongue. My mind's just running. I'm finding reasons to be grateful just this morning. Then I get the privilege of coming out into a parking lot in an actually beautiful day and know that I'm going to be able to open the Bible in my language and try and do my best to explain it to people who actually care what it says. And I was just telling Jim, you're a wonderful group to preach to because you actually care. Folks, that's not always the case. I've preached all over the country. I've preached in places that I'm pretty sure the Apostle Paul couldn't reach. (laughs) Difficult. People who look like angry oil paintings rather than a congregation. And then I got up having done that, and I walked for a little while. And then I remembered maybe I should put a little word of encouragement and invitation out to the church. So I took a smartphone out of my pocket and I put a little video out. You may or may not have seen it. Don't look at it now. It's barely worth looking at. I look like I have a TV set for a head because I've got a giant head, ladies and gentlemen. And there's nothing like making a little video held at arm's length to show that. But I thought I'm walking in almost pitch darkness And isn't it great that in the middle of walking in the darkness, I don't really have any fear for my own safety? And that made me think that when we lived in Mexico, that was not always the case. And we had to be choosy when we went out and where we went and what the time of day was, what the environment was, because we had actual physical threats against our family. And that made me grateful because it reminded me of God's faithfulness and care over us in that time and how privileged I am now to live here. And that was all in about 20 minutes. And my whole day was bursting with joy and I was on the backside of the wetlands walking up a hill and a very elderly couple was coming down the hill. She had a cane and he was lovingly helping her along. And I thought, now that's a picture of lifelong love. I'm so grateful to be married. I hope we both live long enough so that Sharice can help me down a hill someday. <laughs> Just all kinds of reasons to be grateful. What makes it happen? You have to pay attention. Seligman says, think of three things that you're grateful for. Write down the reason you're grateful for them. Here's the Christian step. Then you take all of that and you don't write it down in a notebook alone. You turn to your heavenly father who gave you all of that and you thank him. Does that make sense? If you put that into practice from this Sunday to next, I guarantee you'll be a little bit different. You'll be a little bit stronger. You'll be more aware of God. You'll be more grateful for all the things that he has given you in your life, even as you move through difficult things. Because the Thessalonians are going through difficulty. Paul himself is going through difficulty. And in the middle of it, he says, in the middle of all that, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is vitally important. There are very few times in the Bible where it textually, literally says, this is the will of God. Have you ever wondered what the will of God for your life is? I have. 
People have often asked me, Pastor, what is the will of God for my life? I can tell you on the certainty of Scripture and the plain reading of this very simple verse, God wants you to continually be grateful. If you do it, it'll change you. There's more. We're nearly done. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What is this about? This is a fourth commandment, if you're keeping notes. What Paul is talking about here is that you are always obeying God's Word through the Spirit. In the New Testament, in the days of the New Testament, and I don't have time to delve into this, but you can look in 1 Corinthians 11 through chapter 14 if you want to take notes. God had gifted the New Testament church with people with all different kinds of gifts, including some, Paul says to the Corinthians, and he briefly mentions here, people with the gift of prophecy. Do you read across the book of Acts, you'll occasionally meet people who are foretelling. In other words, they have a revelation from God regarding the future. Much more often, according to 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, people aren't foretelling, they're forthtelling God's word. In other words, they're receiving revelation, they're receiving instruction, they're giving teaching, they're bringing a word of God to the church. Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't quench the Spirit. Don't offend the Spirit of God by wanting nothing to do with those revelations. Listen to them. Do not despise prophecies. Listen, test them, weigh them, as it also says in 1 Corinthians, and take what is good. In other words, these prophets evidently were like modern-day teachers who were forth-telling the Word of God. They may have mixed in some of their own understanding. They may be mistaken. Paul says, take what is good and keep away from every kind of evil. What's the point that we can bring forward to today? What God is interested in in all of these things is for you to continually be obeying Him. You have the written, completed, finished, written Word of God available to you. It's on your phone or it's in your paper copy of the Bible right now. That is undeniably and completely the Word of God to you. Do not disappoint the Spirit. Do not frustrate and quench the Holy Spirit of God by refusing to listen to His Word, by refusing to listen to His Word when it is expounded and explained to you. On the contrary, listen to what is true and hold on to it. Really, what I'm telling you is actually quite simple. This is the first steps of the Christian life. Paul says, in a time of suffering, all of you, pay attention to your spiritual leaders. If they are working hard among you, respect them and follow their instruction. You're all going to suffer and struggle and go up and down at various times. Take care of one another. Watch out for who's becoming lazy. Watch out for someone who's becoming faint-hearted. Look for those who are becoming weak and go back and bring them along with you. As you move through this together, always be rejoicing, always be praying, always be thanking God because that's actually the will of God for your life. And in all of these things, obey the God who spoke to you. Why is this important? Because I told you in the beginning of the pandemic, the American Bible Society did its annual survey. And here's the shocking revelation. Here's the worst thing I've heard in the pandemic so far. 
in the history of the time that the American Bible Society has been surveying Americans' habits of reading the Bible. This year was the year Americans read the Bible the least. Christians under pressure left their Bibles closed. Christians having the opportunity to hear the very words of God, if not the voice of God, the very words of God, anytime they please by simply opening the Bible, stopped. And maybe in this time of suffering, your spiritual habits have suffered. I want to give you a quick moment just to assess that and to ask yourself whether you're closer or farther away from Jesus since this whole thing began. And with no shame and no guilt, if you've noticed that your prayer life has dried up, that you're less joyful, that you're less grateful, that your Bible remains closed on the nightstand day after day, no shame, no guilt, just go back to your heavenly Father. Tell Him He has opened your eyes through the Word Him itself. He's opened your eyes. You see the error of, of your ways and you want to come back to him. He will joyfully receive you. He will give you joy back again. He will speak to you through his word. He will gladly listen to your prayers in the name of his son, Jesus. Just get back on the path. And finally, and I'm done, Paul closes with the prayer. We not only serve one another, we not only deepen our habits, we give up on radical living maybe, but we deepen the simple radical habits of walking along with Jesus, and in all that we do, we trust God to transform us. Look in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. What's it say? He will what? He will surely do it. Paul is giving them these simple instructions to remind them of a great truth. The work that God began in them when he saved them is meant to make them entirely the Lord's and to someday bring them into his presence blameless through the power of the resurrection to redeem and renew even their own bodies. This is what God is working on. Put it in simple, plain language. When God saved you through the gospel of Jesus, his intention was to make you like Jesus. And please don't waste your time in the school of suffering by coming out on the other side less like Jesus than the day you started in the school. All the pressures and the joys, everything that God does in your life, all of it, the parts that make you shout for joy and the things that break your heart and make tears drip down your face, it's all intended for the same glorious purpose, to make you like Jesus Christ. All of it. That's why Paul says, rejoice and pray and give thanks in all of the circumstances. They're going to be vastly different. Today may be a, joy, a day of joy and tomorrow may be a, a day of frustration or heartbreak, but it's all intended to make you like Jesus. You need to trust God and to cooperate with what he's doing to make you more like his son. Because see, here's the thing about good teachers. Good teachers don't cast students out. They teach, they test, 
And if the student comes up short, they reteach and they retest. I'm married to a teacher, and I can tell you objectively, my wife is a gifted teacher. What she does every day with junior high school students, I wouldn't last 10 minutes. I know this because I've visited her classroom. It's not false modesty. It's not a joke. I wouldn't make it. She can take junior high school students with marginal interest in learning a foreign language and have a good number of them speaking quite well in a short amount of time. What does she do? She teaches, she tests, and if they come up short, she doesn't call them names, she doesn't throw them out of the classroom. She evaluates who that student is, how they learn, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and she continually reteaches so that she can deliver the content that she committed herself to teach. Your Heavenly Father is a perfect teacher. If you're not responding well to these pressures and they're not making you in a time of suffering, if it's not making you more like Jesus, He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to say, well, didn't work with this one. No, He's going to continue to work. He is going to complete the good work He began in you. If you want to cooperate and have an easier time in the school of suffering, take the lesson the first time. Tell your heavenly Father, make me humble enough not to resent your teaching, but to take the truth, the correction, the encouragement, whatever you have for me, help, you, help me take it with me so that I become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Because the point of this passage, this two-week series, this inadvertent, unplanned two-week series is this simple truth, folks. When we go through suffering together, we're all better for it. No one should suffer alone. When you go through a time of suffering, you suffer with your God who directs you in all circumstances and who loves you in all of them. You suffer with your spiritual family, some of whom will be stronger, more joyful, and more capable to help you in your time of weakness. You continually turn to the Lord and through prayer give Him all your joys, all your sorrows. You tell Him all about it in prayer. You give thanks to Him all the way through, trusting that when this Short, sad part of the story is over. He will have completed his work in you, and you will be fully and perfectly formed into the image, given the character of his son, Jesus Christ, who is already yours here on earth. Let's pray together. I want to put into practice the thing, the practical thing I'm most advised to you. Could you just take a moment? run your mind through your day, maybe through this week, and just spend a moment being grateful to God. And just tell Him thank you. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen, all these blessings belong to those who begin life with Jesus by trusting Him as Savior, who humbly just lay it all out, confess themselves sinners, tell Him that they trust Him to be a Savior, and ask Jesus to give them eternal life. That's the point. If you don't have that, whether you're online or in person, if you don't have that, that's where you begin. All of this matters, but none of it applies. None of it is possible unless you trust Jesus as Savior first. If you're not certain of that, 
turn to him and tell him, Jesus, I recognize my need. I'm weak, I'm sinful, I'm broken. I haven't walked with you, I've ignored you. I'm not sure I even know you. But I've heard this good news and I trust you and I believe you. Please save me. And he will. That's the promise of God's word. That's the experience of untold millions, including the guy that's talking to you. And if you're a Christian, he's already yours. Be grateful. Father, I pray that whether people are here in the parking lot struggling to cross the line of faith or online with questions, with needs, wherever we are, Lord, I pray that you would meet us there that you would save those who need to become Christians and start following Jesus, that you would do that for them first. And for those of us who already have you and already love you, Lord, make us grateful. Make us joyful. Make us prayerful. Help us trust that you will finish the good work you've started and make us evermore and someday perfectly with the character of your son, Jesus Christ. Comfort those who are brokenhearted, Lord, those of us who are in a sweeter season of life, who have some strength and some resources. Help us to lend it to those of our brothers and sisters who need it. And God, make us open and honest with you and with each other so that we may go through this together and be able to look back in a short time and rejoice in your faithfulness and your mercy all the way through. I pray this in the name of Jesus and Crosspoint said, amen.